Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, off the top, I want to say thanks to Charles uh, for filling in in the pulpit last week. I understand there was a snowstorm and the numbers were down, but uh, Charles, we appreciate you laboring in the gospel, and I'm sure it was a blessing. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I plan to do that this week. So thank you, Charles. Um, I was in Edmonton, had a great time there visiting family, uh, not so great time going to the Oiler game. They lost, uh, but that's okay. Um, actually, I've, I've said to a couple people this morning, it was warmer in Edmonton than it is here, uh, which would classify in the category of miracle. So, um, yeah, coming back, uh, I've had to put more layers on. Anyway... All that aside, let's uh, bow our our hearts and our minds once again to the Lord and let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, the passage in the Sermon on the Mount that we are about to explore is what I would classify as assertive grace. I pray, Spirit, that you would be assertive as you need to be with some of us this morning, Uh, but Lord, that your grace also uh, would shine through Uh, that we would leave this place knowing that we have to do some work, some of us, but knowing also that you give gospel grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name and now ask for your help uh, to keep us alert to what you are saying to your church. Amen. If we read the gospel of Matthew from start to finish, and I hope that some of us have, we get to Matthew 1.23, long before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 1.23, just as a reminder, applies the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the visible and the audible expression of the rule of God. So that by the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount in our reading of the Gospel of Matthew, we are aware, having already read Matthew 1.23, that the Jesus who preaches the sermon is God with us. God is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and that fact alone, I think, should really cause us to sit up and to pay careful and reverent attention to what's being preached in that sermon. Now, the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that there are several passages within it that startle us that disturb us, perhaps, if we've become too comfortable or too complacent with things. God says some things to us in his sermon that are like sandpaper rubbing against us uncomfortably for our own good. God comes along here and he shatters our settled assumptions. And he makes us uncomfortable at times, all in order to help us. To bring us along the path from brokenness, we're all broken, from brokenness to the wholeness that he desires for us. And today's passage is one that fits in the category of shocking for redemptive purposes. And it's shocking for us in large part due to the fact that we are immersed right now in such a sexually permissive culture. The staunchly conservative position of Jesus Christ in this passage will startle some of us, I think, and it may even unsettle some of us if we reckon with it, especially if we've been breathing in too much of the poison gas of culture. 
So be forewarned, Jesus assumes a staunchly conservative position with regard to sexual ethics here. But, you know, I've become increasingly convinced over my 49 years that the vast majority of us just don't have a healthy perspective on sex and on sexual expression despite our trendy bandwagon arguments to the contrary. In my humble opinion and estimation, there is a pronounced disorientation afoot in our culture concerning the whole area of sex. Wouldn't it be great if there was a God and if that God broke through our muddle and spoke sense to us concerning the subject of sex. After all, he created us and he knows the matter perfectly like none of us do. Well, in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Son of God talking to us about certain sexual matters. And we would do very well to listen to him as God calls us to do in Matthew 17.5, where he says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so we listen to Jesus. I hope you have your Bible open. Jesus begins in verse 27 by referencing the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. He says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, that phrase, you shall not commit adultery, is the seventh commandment, which is found in the Old Testament in two places, in Exodus 20, 14, and again in Deuteronomy 5, verse 18. So it's clear here that in Matthew 5, 27, Jesus is making direct reference to the seventh commandment, and the seventh commandment prohibits adultery. What is adultery? Well, in basic terms, adultery is when a married man or a married woman has sexual relations with someone who is not their spouse. The penalty that God prescribed for adultery in the Torah, and again, just so we're straight on this, the Torah is the law of God given in the first five books of the Bible. The penalty that God prescribed for adultery in the Torah was the death penalty. Deuteronomy 22.22 and Leviticus 20 verse 10 both have death as the prescribed penalty for those who committed adultery. Evidently, then, adultery is a grave and a very serious offense in the eyes of God. There's no getting around that fact. Now, some interpreters within Israel during the time of Jesus and before his time, attempted to skirt around the seventh commandment and its ramifications by arguing that the commandment only applied if an Israelite committed adultery with another Israelite. In other words, if, for example, I was a married Israelite man, I was free, they said, to have sexual relations with a Gentile woman who was not my wife, such a thing would not technically qualify as adultery. It was only, is, as, as a married Israelite man, it was only if I had sex with an Israelite woman who was not my wife, then the commandment and its ramifications applied. So went the argument. And many people in Jesus' day also wanted to reduce or distill the whole issue of adultery to the seventh commandment alone. That is, they resisted any effort to link the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, 
with what's written in the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. While Jesus, as we will see very shortly, does precisely that. He links the seventh commandment with the tenth. To covet another person's wife, tenth commandment. To let an inner desire for another person's spouse run rampant. That is organically linked to the act of adultery itself, seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then verse 28. But I say to you. Again, just pause here on this phrase. But I say to you. I've mentioned this before. Every Jewish rabbi in Jesus' day would defer to God in the third person in their speech. They would say, thus says the Lord as they preached. They wouldn't dare speak on their own authority. They were speaking on behalf of God. So they said, thus says the Lord. But Jesus, in his speech defers to himself in the first person. Notice, I say to you. As the Swedish rabbi Marcus Arenpreis once put it, Jesus' voice had an alien sound that Jewish ears had never heard before. For Judaism, only the revealed teaching of God was important, not the teacher's personal I. But with Jesus, a man arose in Israel who cried, I say to you, yes, Jesus Christ spoke in his own name. Why or how could he dare to do this? Well, because Jesus was not merely a spokesman for God. Like the prophets were, Jesus is God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1.23. And thus Jesus can say unabashedly and with full authority, I say to you. Let's continue. Jesus says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks, who looks, At a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This past week, two of my children went to the optometrist to get stronger lenses for their glasses. Weak lenses make your sight blurry. You need a stronger prescription so that things come into sharp focus again. What Jesus is doing here in verse 28 is he's strengthening the prescription on the seventh commandment so that it comes into clear and sharp focus. People in his day were blurry in their perception of the seventh commandment. As we said moments ago, they wanted to limit you shall not commit adultery. They wanted to limit that command only and solely to the actual act of adultery. And that was a blurry perception. What Jesus does here is he sharpens the focus. He brings the seventh commandment into combination with the tenth commandment. In the tenth commandment, God prohibits inappropriate an unbridled sexual desire for someone who is another person's spouse. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. What Jesus is saying here in verse 28, 
listen carefully, is that it doesn't go far enough to simply refrain from the act of adultery. It doesn't go far enough. We must refrain from the act of adultery, but it doesn't go far enough. His essential point here is that we must also refrain from illicit, unlawful, lustful, sexual intentions concerning the opposite sex. Now, yes, in the immediate context of verse 28, Jesus is talking to men. In the immediate context, he's talking to men. Men who look at women to lust after women. He's talking to men, perhaps because Jesus knows that men have more of a tendency than women to objectify the opposite sex in a lecherous way. Men, are you with me? It's awful quiet in here. So he's talking to men, but with John Stott and with many other New Testament commentators, I want to argue that we would be short-sighted, I think, to limit the application of verse 28 only to men. Stott cautions us against reading verse 28 only in terms of a man lusting after a woman. The application is broader. Stott argues that verse 28 has application for a married or unmarried man who lusts inappropriately after a woman, but it also has application for a married or unmarried woman who lusts inappropriately after a man At the very least, those applications are in force here. Stock concludes on the matter this way on what Jesus is teaching here. He says this, Jesus' emphasis is that any and every sexual practice which is immoral in deed is immoral also in look and in thought. I want to read that to you one more time. Stock says, Any and every sexual practice which is immoral in deed is immoral also in look and in thought. Well, let's try to further refine our understanding of verse 28. What I want you to notice here are two key words in the verse. The words look or looks and the word heart. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. First of all, how does one look? One looks with the eyes. And the looking that Jesus describes in this verse is a looking, whether in real life or on a phone screen or on a computer screen or on a TV or in a magazine, this is a looking that is a lecherous looking, a sexually lustful ogling. Or looking. What Jesus is describing here is leering, lingering with the eyes in a sexually lustful way. Now, I want to be careful here. Jesus is not condemning the appreciation of beauty. If you see a man and you notice that he is physically handsome. Or if you see a woman and you notice that she is physically beautiful, that's totally okay. Jesus is not forbidding the appreciation of beauty. He's not condemning the admiration of physical appearance. 
You and I are not to become like the group of Pharisees that were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Why were they called that? Well, because they so feared looking at a woman lustfully that they closed their eyes as they walked around so they wouldn't see anybody, and then they started banging into buildings. (laughs) And they became the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. We're not to become like that. We can keep our eyes open. Amen? Hallelujah? We can keep our eyes open and we can look at the opposite sex and we can appreciate handsomeness and or beauty. But as Dan Doriani has put it, it is one thing to make an aesthetic observation. It is another to turn it over to the imagination and entertain immoral fantasies. See the difference? One more time. It is one thing, this is Dan Doriani, it is one thing to make an aesthetic observation. My, she's a beautiful woman. It is another to turn it over to the imagination and entertain immoral fantasies. Jesus is focusing our attention in verse 28 on the inappropriate, lustful, unloving, evil use of our God-given imagination. Well, okay, we've talked a little bit about that word look. Let's turn our attention now to our other word, heart. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The heart in the thought world of Jesus is the very center of a person's life. The heart for Jesus refers to a person's thoughts, imagination, emotions, and will. Significantly, over in Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus says that sexual immorality, or in some translations, adulteries, come out of the heart. The fallen human heart is the wellspring of sexual immorality. And of course, there are a number of injunctions or commands in Scripture to actively guard the heart. Right? We think, for example, of a verse like Proverbs 4.23. This is a good one to have on your fridge if you like to do that sort of thing. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Or Psalm 101, verse 2, where God calls us to walk with integrity of heart. Let me ask you a question. Are you actively and deliberately and vigilantly, it's a hard word to get out, vigilantly working to guard your heart? Am I? It's an important question. But now the passage that I want us to look at briefly here is in the book of Job, chapter 31, because I think this helps us in our interpretation of the Matthew verse. So in Job 31.1, Job talks about, listen to his language here, he talks about making a covenant with his eyes, making a covenant with his eyes so that he would not gaze on a virgin. And then down in verse 7, he describes the possibility of his heart going after his eyes. Isn't that interesting? His heart going after his eyes. And in verse 9, he talks about having his heart enticed toward a woman. So there is an interplay in that part of Job between the heart and the eyes. There's a connection made between eyes or looking and heart or imagination. Job's heart 
followed his eyes or was fed by his eyes. Just as it is in our verse in Matthew 5.28. Listen, friends. The idea seems to be from God that our eyes can be like the fertilizer that grows the already tainted plant that is growing in the fallen heart. Or, to change the metaphor, our eyes are like the lighter fluid that inflames the lustful fire that's already smoldering in our fallen heart. Or, to change the metaphor again, if the heart is the faulty black engine. The eye is like the key in the ignition switch that makes the engine go. If our eyes are undisciplined, if our eyes are undisciplined and we allow them to engage in that leering, lecherous, lustful, lingering, looking that we described earlier, what it does is it feeds and it waters the evil in our fallen heart and out of the heart proceeds sexual immorality. Leering and lusting with the eyes nurtures and feeds our sick hearts and encourages our hearts to burn in immorality. What's Jesus doing in verse 28? He's putting his finger on the intent of the fallen human heart. If we want to say this morning, if we're sitting there and we're, we're saying, well, I've com- never committed the act of adultery, so I'm okay. Jesus says no. Let's focus instead on the imaginations and the intentions and the fantasies of your heart. Where are you at? Jesus is putting his finger on the twisted inclinations of our inner lives. He's focusing on sin, the power of sin in the heart that manifests and presents itself in sins, plural. Sins, plural. So in other words, acts like adultery or murder are the presenting symptoms of a deeper disease of the heart called sin that each and every one of us has been born into post-Adam. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, so is sexual desire not okay then for Jesus? Is Jesus attacking human hormones here? I want you to listen carefully. Jesus is not saying that sexual desire in and of itself is a bad thing. He's not saying that, and he would never ever say that. In fact, he champions sexual desire, and he celebrates it, and he wants us to celebrate it in places like the Song of Songs, Did you know that in medieval times, you had to be 13 before you were allowed to read the Song of Songs in some circles? Did you know that? Song of Songs is a great celebration of human sexuality. Or Proverbs 5.19 or 1 Corinthians 7, just to name a few. Sexual desire and sexual relations are God-given and they are good. And they are beautiful things. God made us chemically and he made us biologically to experience pleasure in sex. But the overwhelming evidence in the Bible is that there is only one place for sexual relations and that's the marriage bed. Again, Dan Doriani comments, he says, sex is good in the right place and wrong in others. The right place 
is the commitment and safety of marriage. God blesses sexuality when it is surrounded by loving faithfulness between a man and a woman. Sex is a good gift of God, friends, but it must be engaged in the right place. Amen? Just like sleep is a good and beautiful gift from God, but sleep can be used immorally. What if, if on the way home today, I was driving on the 40 at 100 kilometers an hour, and I said to myself, well, I'm going to fall asleep for a while. (laughs) And I turned on my side, closed my eyes to, to go to sleep with my foot on the gas pedal. I think I'd fall into the permanent sleep of death, for sure, but it would be an immoral use of God's good gift because I would bring devastation to others around me. Sleeping in the wrong place at the wrong time is immoral. Sexual desire and sexual relations are good gifts of God, but there is a right time and place for them, and there is a wrong time and place for them. In Matthew 5.28, the Son of God is describing the wrong time and place for sexual passions and sexual relations. He's saying that the person who lusts in the manner that we have described is the person who is breaking the Tenth Commandment about coveting, which in turn also breaks the Seventh Commandment, the lusting person has already committed adultery in the heart. Now, as we move finally to verses 29 and 30, I want to say that in in the most basic terms, and I hope you're listening, in the most basic terms, these two verses are about not getting to the place described in verse 28. In other words, these two verses give the preventative medicine so that you and I won't end up at the place of the lusting person described in verse 28 who breaks the 7th and 10th commandments. And listen very carefully now, friends. I want you to listen very carefully. The preventative medicine that Jesus prescribes in verses 29 and 30, is enormously, massively, gigantically, hugely, crucially, vitally, momentously important for you and I to take this preventative medicine, and to apply in our lives. And why? Because the stakes for us could not be any higher. Let's notice what's at stake here first. What are the stakes? Now again, I remind you, this is God, the one who created you. This is God talking to us here. Okay, Keep that in mind. Twice in verses 29 and 30, he talks about the possibility of our whole body being thrown into hell. If we fail to take the medicine, or if we fail to do the work that Jesus prescribes in these verses. And this is work or medicine that will cause us to avoid the lusting described in verse 28. If we fail to do the work or take the medicine, the horrifying result of our ongoing unchecked lusting, according to Jesus Christ, will be eternity in hell. Preaching is hard sometimes, but I'm just the messenger. Above all, I want you to hear Jesus this morning. Please don't focus on Brent. Focus on Jesus and what he says to you here. The stakes are so high for you and for me in this matter. Let's read verses 29 and 30 from start to finish. And then we'll come back and just unpack them briefly. Jesus says, 
after saying what he's just said about lusting and the eyes and adultery in the heart in verse 28, he says now, if your right eye, there's the looking again, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is Jesus speaking. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I warned you at the beginning that the passage under consideration this morning would shock us. And here it is. I think Jesus purposely intends to shock us and to unsettle us here for our own good, for our flourishing as human beings. He uses imagery in these verses that is intentionally grotesque, intentionally disturbing, gouging out your own eye, cutting off your own hand. Can you imagine doing either of those things? This is really gross, and it's really unsettling. Now the question, of course, is, is Jesus talking about literally, physically, gouging out an eye and or cutting off a hand? Is he prescribing that we actually do these horrific things as measures to stop sinning? The simple answer is no. As Westerners, we might not know this, but in many places in the Middle East, there is a long and very colorful history of people making regular use of hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you use an over-the-top figure of speech to drive home your point. But the figure of speech isn't meant to be taken literally. So as an example, Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War, predicted that the war with the United States would be, in his words, the mother of all battles. Okay? He was using hyperbole. That war certainly was not literally the mother of all battles. Jesus, in verses 29 and 30, in good ancient Near Eastern form, is using hyperbole. Jesus is using exaggerated figures of speech that are not meant to be taken literally, and he's, he's saying this in order to drive home a massively important point. Just before we get to what his basic point is, I want you to notice for a moment that he specifies, doesn't he? He specifies right eye, right? Right eye causing a person to sin and right hand causing a person to sin. In the world of the Bible, the right hand and the right eye were the more honored members of the body. So what's Jesus' point in these verses? His point is simply this. Since the consequences of ongoing sexual immorality are so frightening, Namely, having your whole body thrown into hell. It would be best for you to be utterly ruthless and decisive in your life to the point of cutting off what's precious to you, if necessary, in your pursuit of sexual purity. One more time, since the consequences of ongoing sexual immorality are so frightening, namely having your whole body thrown into hell, it would be best for you to be utterly ruthless and decisive in your life to the point of cutting off what's precious to you, if necessary, in your pursuit of sexual purity. The idea here is 
gouge out and maim and utterly, urgently eliminate and resolutely kill whatever it is that prompts you to lust. Notice the trauma, the trauma that Jesus describes in these verses, gouging out an eye and cutting off a hand. Sometimes to eliminate pathways to lust in your life, it will be a traumatic thing. It might even involve canceling your cell phone. Traumatic, right? Canceling your cell phone if you're prone to looking at porn on your phone. It's awful quiet in here. Better to go through the rest of your brief life on this earth without a cell phone. If your cell phone has become for you a candy store of lust. Better to go through life without the cell phone, this little blip on the radar of your eternity, this little 75 years. Better to go through that without a cell phone than spend an eternity in hell. Let's talk briefly about porn. Because it's ubiquitous these days and it's a widespread problem both outside and inside the church. Porn inflames lust. Yes? Porn inflames lust. Porn degrades the women and the men who are involved in it. Porn injures human dignity, and it damages real-life intimacy. Porn makes people pathetic voyeurs. And porn is addictive. Porn sinfully perverts and wickedly distorts what God has created. The conclusion of a recent study was that of the total visitors to pornographic websites, 72% were men and 28% were women. It seems that although it can be a problem for women, it's a much more widespread problem for men. I'm a man, and so I'll speak to men for a moment, but women, please listen to if porn is a problem for you. If you're a man or a woman with a porn problem, I want to ask you personally, how do you hear Jesus in verses 29 and 30? Does what he says matter to you? How will you apply these verses today? right after you leave this building? Will it mean that you need to get traumatic in your life to cut this off and gouge it out? See, it's not enough to default to, well, it's the Spirit's work. All I can do is passively wait and pray. It's not enough. Because Jesus in this passage calls you and he calls me to do some work, to go to war. You know, the spiritual life is war. We need to go to war. We need to get creative and to ask ourselves, how am I going to actively amputate the pathways to lust in my life and then do it? The stakes are so high. Romans 13, 14, and I want you to listen carefully. How much provision for the flesh are we supposed to make? Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, kill it, mortify Put to death what is earthly in you. And the first thing there, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, interestingly enough, which is idolatry. 
Make no provision put to death. If you sense and if you know that there is that ugly, voracious, lustful fire that is already smoldering in your heart, don't willfully douse it with gasoline through your eyes, lusting so that the flame goes crazy. There's too much at stake. What will it involve for you and for me to apply verses 29 and 30? Will it involve us taking a different route home, perhaps? Do it. Will it involve us avoiding someone's house? Don't go to that house. Will it involve us giving away our computer altogether? Or, at the very least, installing the Covenant Eyes software or similar software? Do it if necessary. The stakes are so high. Will it involve something traumatic like changing jobs? Or changing schools. For some it might also mean getting a whole lot more serious and disciplined and sober with spiritual disciplines. Regular Bible intake. Preaching God's love to yourself more than you currently do. Seeking forgiveness. Pleading to God in prayer. Seeking trusted counsel. Listening more than you talk. Listening better. Fasting. Confessing to a trusted friend. Heartfelt repentance. To be faithful to Jesus in this matter might mean a traumatic amputation for you in one of the ways that we have mentioned or in another way that we didn't mention. It might mean breaking from something that you cherish. There's work for you to do and for me to do. Eternity is at stake, according to Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, Nothing must be allowed to come between you and your soul's eternal destiny. Now, if you're listening to this sermon and you feel disquieted, quite convicted by what Jesus has said to you in this passage. If in listening to what Jesus has said here about sexual lust, you feel utterly helpless and you feel a sense of your sin and your foulness, if you resonate with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If this morning you feel a fresh sense of your poverty of spirit, that has arisen because of how uncompromising Jesus is, well then, my friend, you're in a good place. You're in a good place. And my encouragement to you is to get on your face today and repent before Jesus with no delay. To seek forgiveness from him in his atoning, sacrificial death. And have the assurance that if you confess your sins, he is what? Faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. You see, what Jesus has done for us in our passage is he's revealed us to us. Right? He's revealed you to yourself and me to myself. He's taken his blazing, uncomfortable, cosmic flashlight and he's pointed it at the disease of our fallen hearts so that we will be horrified at ourselves. That's his purpose. Horrified at ourselves and fly to him for forgiveness and life. There is absolutely no hope of you and I escaping sexual temptation in this life. Did you know that? There's no hope. 
you're going to face sexual temptation. But there is hope in the gospel. As believers who have been rebirthed by the Spirit of God, we have not been left alone to fight the battle. Amen? In Romans 8.13, Paul says something incredibly vital. He says, and I want you to listen, Romans 8.13, he says, If by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You hear the good news there? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit is the only way for us to successfully do the work. Are you with me? The Spirit is the only way. You have no power. The Spirit is the only way. The Spirit's power is the only way that the lust in us will be killed. Does the Spirit indwell you? Are you a believer? As believers, we have the Holy Spirit, our power, our help, our comfort. Plead to Him on your knees for power to overcome lust. There's too much at stake. Plead to Him for help to pluck out the eye and cut off the hand for your eternal benefit and for His glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you always have ways of flipping our worlds right upside down, upsetting the apple cart, rubbing us uncomfortably with sandpaper for our own good, for our flourishing. Lord, because when we try to figure out how to go and what the way is by ourselves, 11 times out of 10 we fail. To whom else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we thank you for the words of this section of Matthew 5. And may the Spirit come along and help us today and this week to apply what Jesus has said to us and what the Spirit is teaching us. Be with us. Walk with us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.